Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary. Each week, it's uh, my opportunity to talk with you on the podcast about ministry leadership issues and to try to bring some information that will help you to be more effective at expanding the influence of the gospel, building your church, or expanding your ministry organization. Last week on the podcast, we talked about uh, the importance of developing leaders for your church or ministry organization, and today we want to follow up with part two of that presentation. Last week, we, sp- we focused on the question, where do leaders come from, and uh, a biblical model for leadership development. And so today, I want to continue along the same theme, but maybe shift gears and go a little different direction by talking about uh, some of the practical realities that are involved in a leadership development process. First of all, over the years, there have been a number of convictions that, have, uh, that I've developed that help me to be personally motivated to develop more leaders. And let me say the first one is, my leadership role is a stewardship. You know, a steward manages a position uh, or manages something that belongs to another person. And in the case of leadership, I consider my uh, leadership responsibility a stewardship, meaning that I don't own the role or responsibility I've been given. It really belongs to God. He shared it with me for a season of my life, and he expects me to make the most of it that I can. But because my leadership role is a stewardship, uh, I have a sense that I need to be developing others who can take on that stewardship when it's no longer my time or my responsibility. Another conviction is that my tenure is limited. Uh, it's hard to face this reality, but every one of the every one of us is an interim leader. Now, I've been the president of Gateway Seminary for about 14 years. I received the responsibility from a good man, Dr. William O. Cruz. He had been the president for 18 years, but there came a time when his tenure ended and it was time for him to hand the job over to someone else. And the same thing will happen for me. So because I know my tenure is limited, no matter what my responsibility or no matter, no matter how many years I stay, it's important for me to be developing other people who can come into my role or come into similar roles in other places or positions. So my tenure is limited. That motivates me to train leaders. Another conviction I have is that my leadership responsibility includes building an organization. Now today, particularly among younger leaders, uh, there's a, uh, an interest in more organic ministry and more organic leadership that's much more fluid and flexible. And certainly, it's possible to build an institutional structure that's so rigid that the life is choked out of whatever might could be done uh, in terms of the mission or in terms of following God's leadership or the Spirit's promptings. I'm certainly opposed to that. But at the same time, uh, while we want to emphasize organic ministry and organic leadership, building an organization is also an essential component of extending ourselves into the future. And so I need to, as a church leader, for example, think about building uh, a team of people who work with me and that they will have a they will have teams of people who work with them. And so that this organization emerges uh, as a result of trying to accomplish the mission and can facilitate the organic life of a church without choking it out. And so building an organization requires developing more leaders. Another conviction I have is that my discipleship mandate is developing people. Uh, As a person who's responsible to make disciples, I'm supposed to take people from where they are 
uh, to where they need to be, at least as much as I'm able to do so as a leader and developer of others. And so a discipleship mandate means that I win the lost of faith in Christ, stabilize those converts, turn those converts into disciples, and then from those disciples, create leaders. And so that's my mandate. Uh, Jesus said, go and make disciples. And I think in that phrase is encapsulated the whole process I'm describing today. And then another conviction that I have about developing leaders is that people are competent and can be trusted and, in fact, must be trusted to lead effectively. Now, a number of years ago, I worked with a person who had been through some burnout experiences in leadership, and when he came to work with me, uh, part of his early months of us being together was a healing process. And so after a few months, he came to my office and said, "Uh, Jeff, I want to tell you, you've really restored my confidence in people and in their ability to do ministry and to lead out in ministry. He said, uh, when I came to work for you, I, I honestly felt people are basically stupid and I was tired of messing with them and I didn't want to train or trust them any longer. I just wanted to do everything myself. But you've helped me to understand that, that people are trustworthy and they, they, they can lead and we have to trust them to do that. Well, a few more months went by and I called him into my office and I said, Uh, You remember that uh, day you told me that uh, I had helped you and that you had really regained your confidence and trust in people and that you really wanted to train and shape them for leadership? He said, yeah, I remember that. I said, well, I want to tell you that uh, you were wrong that day. People are basically stupid, and I'm fed up too. And so I told him that the only thing that was keeping me going was the fact that he had found new hope, and could he explain to me uh, how he did that exactly because I was in need of the uh, the same treatment that day. We all get there, don't we? We invest ourselves in people. Uh, They disappoint us, they fail us, or even when they do their best, sometimes their job transfers them to another location or the military sends them halfway around the world. And all the investment that we've made and all the work we've put into someone and all the development that we've given them uh, is for naught. And so it's, it's easy to lose hope and to lose heart in this process, but we have to come back to remember people are competent, people are trustworthy, and if we're going to have leadership that is a stewardship, that recognizes limited tenure, that builds organization, that makes disciples. If we're going to do all that, we're going to have to recognize that people are worth our investment, they can be trusted, and they must be trusted to lead effectively. So some of those are some of the convictions that motivate me to stay at this task of leadership development. Now, in light of that, uh, over the years, as I've taught on this, there have been a number of reasons that people have raised with me why leadership development is so difficult. So let's talk about some of those reasons and maybe a few uh, challenges or perspectives that help us confront that. The first reason that leadership development is difficult is because of the time involved. In fact, leaders often are stressed about the amount of time they have and they feel a great deal of pressure to get things done now. Well, Uh, let me surprise you by saying that if you want something done now, you'll be better off to simply do it yourself. Because quite frankly, most leaders are more competent, more skilled, more capable than the people they're training, and they should be able to do things more quickly, more rapidly, uh, and even at a higher quality. So if you want something done now, uh, just do it yourself. But if you want a 100 things done now, are a hundred things done in the future, you better find a way to train some leaders to help you. Because the more people that you train, the greater impact of what you do in the organization that you lead. I call this the compounding interest principle of leadership. 
you know, if you're in your mid-60s and you start saving for retirement, you're not going to have very much. But if you're in your mid-20s and you save just a little bit for retirement, 40 years from now, the compounding interest of what will happen to the time value of money will astound you. A little bit done now over the decades turns into a significant amount of resource. So it's the same way with leadership development. When you start first training leaders in a church or ministry organization, it goes very slowly at first. You see very little results. But as time goes by and the momentum builds and you have more and more people sharing leadership responsibility with you, and then when they start training others, and then when they start training others, then you see the compounding impact of leadership development. So time pressures are uh, a challenge to leadership development. The pressure to get things done now mitigates against developing more leaders. But if you want to get things done over a decade and get more done over a decade than you could ever do by yourself, start training leaders. Another issue that people sometimes raise is the, what I call quality issues. People saying, well, I just don't really want to train others or trust others because they just won't do things as well as I can. You know, in, a short, in the short run, that may be true, but in the long run, you'll be amazed at how people can rise to leadership and how the skills and abilities and talents they have will exceed yours. One of the um, early examples of this for me was when I became a pastor. I had been a minister to children before I became a pastor. And so I came into that role with a great deal of experience in things like vacation Bible school. Well, as soon as I arrived at my first church, uh, a woman made an appointment, came in my office and said, Pastor, do you want to have vacation Bible school this next summer? I said, absolutely. She said, well, I don't know how you'll want to do it, but here's how we've done it in the past. There's another woman in the church and I who've uh, been leading vacation Bible schools for years. We've been trained and we've had a lot of experience. And so what we do is we alternate every other year being the director. And this next year is my year to be the director. And so if it's all right with you, um, you know, I'll get us started on, on our vacation Bible school preparations. Well, I thought, man, I'm a new pastor. I'm swamped with so many other details. This woman sitting in front of me probably can't do a very good vacation Bible school, but I'll eh, let her give it a shot. And so I said, sure, go ahead with your VBS. She said, well, pastor, in, the, in years past, we've always set a goal for our VBS attendance to equal the total enrollment of our Sunday school. Now, we only have a VBS for children, but we set the goal of having an, uh, our total enrollment of the total enrollment of our Sunday school. Well, at the time, this particular church had a total Sunday school enrollment of about 225, and maybe about 75 of those would have been children. And I thought to myself, this woman thinks she's going to have 225 children and workers at a Bible school? But I said, you know, that'll be great. If you can do that, that's awesome. So she went off and started preparing her Bible school, and I put in the back of my mind, now when this fails entirely, um, I will step in and be pastoral and supportive, but next year I'll teach these people how to do a real vacation Bible school. So this summer finally came, and the first Monday of Bible school opened, and we didn't have 225 people enrolled in our Bible school. It was only about 220 and the director came to my office and said, well, pastor, we didn't quite reach our goal. We're just a few children short, but we always build enrollment the second day and maybe even the third day. So I think by Friday, we will have exceeded our goal of 225 enrolled in Bible school. I was shocked. 
This was a church at that time that maybe had 100 to 120 people in the total worship attendance on a Sunday, and this woman had more than doubled that for Vacation Bible School. It was a humbling moment for me to realize that maybe some other people had been trained to lead in some ways that even exceeded what I could do. And I learned a valuable lesson that day that if I'll train leaders or if I'll recognize the leadership training that perhaps other people have, some amazing and remarkable things can happen. So yes, the quality issues of leadership development and of ministry performance are important. We want things to be done at a certain quality. But to arrogantly assume that, we, that we're the best at everything undermines our leadership effectiveness. Sometimes we train people, we release people, we motivate people, and we see them do things we could have never done before. Well, another issue that's a little darker issue as a reason that people resist leadership development are what I call control issues. Control issues. Some leaders don't want to train other leaders because they know that when they train those leaders and put them into responsible positions, that it will diminish their control and, quite frankly, also diminish the accolades or the, the, uh, uh, the credit that's given to them for the accomplishments. I had one particular pastor that I worked with a few years ago that really struggled with this. Uh, he had a, a church attendance about 400, and he was uh, working himself to an early grave, uh, trying to maintain personal contact and do all the personal ministry of a church that size. I went to visit him once, and he showed me a building plan that he was developing that would uh, have an auditorium that would seat 1,000 people. I said, wow, that, that's an amazing facility. Why did you choose 1,000? And I'll never forget his answer. He said, because I know that's how many people I can personally take care of. Well, no pastor can personally take care of a thousand people. But he wanted to try, partly because he wanted to control the situation, but more importantly, he wanted to control all the ministry that was done so that it all reflected back on him. Uh, unfortunately, that story had a tragic ending. Uh, just a couple of years after that, this pastor's wife left him, and when she did, she said, I cannot compete with his mistress. I said, I had no idea he had another woman. She said, he doesn't have another woman. He has a church that gives him all the emotional support and all the emotional uh, uh, response that he needs. He doesn't need me. He's got a mistress called a church. Well, that situation reveals that sometimes a person can resist leadership development and shared leadership responsibility because they want to control the situation, keep it focused on them so that it meets their deepest personal needs. And if that's keeping you from developing leaders, you need to resolve that issue by developing security in Jesus Christ and recognizing that no amount of ministry performance and no responsiveness of any ministry organization, be it church, uh, mission field or seminary, no responsiveness from any organization can meet those deep needs that you have. Well, another reason people resist leadership development are what I call vulnerability issues. Frankly, leadership development makes us vulnerable. It's draining, it's inefficient, and it opens us up to failures that are sometimes uh, very, very difficult. I think about one particular man that uh, came along in my church leadership ministry at a particular time. Uh, he 
when he joined our church, I, I thought that he had some uh, pretty significant leadership abilities. He seemed to have a great passion for the Lord and for ministry, so he moved through a discipleship process and then into a leadership development track. Um, I started spending a lot of personal time with him, mentoring him on a weekly basis, and that went on for almost a year. But after I had been working with him for about six months, I noticed that while I was with him, I was making an impression on him, and he seemed very responsive to what I was teaching him to do and to how I was directing him and guiding him as he developed a ministry leadership role in our church. But when I stepped away, he went back to being just what he'd been before. Uh, I sometimes likened him to an old uh, advertising character called the Pillsbury Doughboy. If you remember those old commercials, when you pushed your finger into the doughboy, he f showed the impression and he giggled a bit and responded. But when you took the finger away, he went back to just what he'd always been before. That's how I felt about this man I was working with. When I was pushing on him and prodding on him and trying to impress him with leadership principles or leadership insights or even trying to coach him on actions he could take to be more effective in his leadership role, he was incredibly responsive, eager to learn and seemingly uh, soaking up everything I had to say to him. But when it came time to put it into practice, nothing really changed. Frankly, after a year of that, I had to say to him that I could no longer invest the kind of time I was spending with him and, in fact, had to move him out of the leadership role I'd ask him to take and move into a lesser role. That was a very painful experience. Uh, some people uh, that knew him got angry with me. People that had been under his direction were frustrated that I had let it go on this long. Uh, while it wasn't a major church blow-up or a major church explosion, uh, it was enough of a disruption that I noticed it and had to spend some time uh, recovering from it in my own relationships with people as I tried to move them forward toward new leadership and toward a new model of who we might bring into that position. So when I say vulnerability issues, what I mean is, yeah, uh, leadership development can be draining and inefficient. It can involve some failure. Uh, leadership development exposes us emotionally to the possibility of uh, difficulty and conflict and some uh, relationship turmoil, but it's worth it because when the successes uh, exceed the failures, the impact is very significant. And then finally, another reason leadership uh, development is difficult are what I call uh, legacy issues. Uh, sometimes leadership development is neglected because we're too busy thinking about ourselves and what we want the organization to accomplish with us or for us. Uh, leadership development means that you have a vision for not only what's going to happen in your church organization while you're there, but what's going to happen after you're gone and maybe even what's going to happen after the person's gone after that. You know, one of the things I've done here at the seminary is uh, worked hard at developing leaders who are good at fundraising and at uh, estate planning. Uh, what that means is I'm working to develop people, to employ people who are raising money that probably won't be given to the seminary in my lifetime and may not even come to the seminary in the next president's lifetime. But perhaps the president after that is going to be the recipient of that estate plan when that person dies and leaves their resources to Christian work. That kind, of, that kind of leadership development where you're 
training people and motivating people and even employing people uh, to do things for your church or your organization that certainly won't make a significant difference in your lifetime, but maybe it will be in the next lifetime or even the one after that. That's a long-term vision of what it means to be involved in leadership development. And if you neglect the legacy issues, thinking that you're only developing leaders to serve you, build your kingdom, expand your empire, you're taking a very short-sighted approach and you really won't do the kind of leadership development that's needed over the long haul. So why is leadership development difficult? Well, Time issues, quality issues, control issues, vulnerability issues, legacy issues, lots of reasons why it's difficult. But nevertheless, as I've already said by those personal convictions I stated at the beginning, we simply must do it. Well, last, let's talk about some methods of developing leaders. There's really about four ways that I've used over the years and I'm still using today to develop leaders in our organization or in a church organization. The first method of developing leaders is what I call one-on-one teaching. Now, one-on-one teaching is same-gender relationships, in other words, men training men, women training women. And these relationships typically work best over a limited time or a limited duration, where you say to someone, I'd like to meet with you for six weeks, or I'd like to meet with you for the next three months, or perhaps I'd like to meet with you for the next six months, but I discourage you from making a longer commitment than that. Uh, you can always renew the commitment. You can say, let's meet for six weeks, and then if we'll, it will reevaluate, and perhaps we'll go on for another six months after that. Or let's meet for three months, and then we'll evaluate and perhaps go another three months. Or we might even say, let's meet for six months, and then we'll evaluate what we need to do beyond that. One-on-one teaching means that you meet with a, another person for a limited time with a specific goal. Uh, That goal could be something like reading a book on leadership together and discussing a chapter each week or watching a video series on leadership and uh, and, uh, developing that and discussing it each week. It might also mean focusing on some specific skill development. For example, you might say, well, I see this particular person as being the head of the Sunday school for our church, or this person's head of the small group ministry for our church, or this person's going to be the head of the women's ministry or the youth ministry or the children's ministry. So you see them not just in terms of generic leadership development, but perhaps even developing them for a certain position. So therefore, the curriculum that you're using, the book, the video, whatever, uh, would involve Uh, skill development in that particular area. So one-on-one teaching means that uh, you're involved in a relationship with one person, uh, same gender, I advocate, limited time, uh, six weeks, three months, six months, a limited time that can be renewed, of course, and lengthened as needed, and that it have a specific goal, like reading a book together or accomplishing a video course together or working through some material that prepares them for a specific task, like working on a project uh, that would uh, help them to learn what it means to direct a ministry like women's ministry or preschool ministry or outreach ministry or something like that. So one-on-one teaching is one method of developing leaders. A second method is one-on-one coaching. Now, how is this different? Well, one-on-one coaching is on-the-job training. In other words, let's say that you're placing a new person in responsible uh, for your church's men's ministry. And so you say to that fellow, I'd like to spend six weeks with you and talk with you about general leadership principles, and then we'll evaluate after that. After that six weeks of general leadership principles, you say, you know, I really think you have the potential of being a leader in our men's ministry. Uh, Why don't we spend the next three months going through this men's ministry leadership curriculum, working through it a chapter each week, and I'll teach you what it means to be 
um, a men's ministry leader. That's one-on-one teaching. But one-on-one coaching is when you then place the person in the leadership role and you say, uh, now I'm going to meet with you weekly or meet with you every other week while you're on the job, and I'm going to coach you on applying what, we, what I taught you and learning what it means to do this position specifically. Now, I use this model here at the seminary with new vice presidents. Since I've been at uh, Gateway, I've had uh, three or four younger vice presidents join our team. And when they come, I I set them up on this kind of supervisory uh, process. I say, the first uh, three months you're here, I want to meet with you every week. So we schedule lunch or something like that, and we meet every week for the first three months. Then the next three months, I say we'll meet once a month. And then after that, once a quarter, until we've completed the first full year. Now, I do this because I want the vice president not to be taught how to do their job. They already come with a level of competency and leadership development. They should have the the knowledge base to do their job. But they don't have the -the on-the-job coaching that they need to be effective in this specific job. Uh, They don't know the minefields in the organization. They don't know the relational dynamics that are existent in any organization. Uh, They don't know some of my past decisions or some of my prejudices or my perspectives or just how I want things done. And so uh, we go through this coaching process where we have intense meeting the first three months, a little less the next three, and then certainly less than that following afterward. And after they've been here about a year, uh, they're established fully, and we just move into the annual review cycle that we normally have with executive leaders. This kind of on-the-job coaching is sometimes what's really missing in leadership development in churches and ministry organizations. Yes, we win a person to faith in Christ, and we stabilize them as a new convert. We move them into a discipleship program, and they start to thrive in that. And then we move them into some leadership development. Uh, Particularly, we start meeting with them one-on-one, and we start shaping them toward leadership, and we get them ready. And then we place them as the preschool director, or we put them in place as the women's ministry coordinator, or we assign them a task of leading a certain part of the outreach program of our church. And we say, well, let me know how that goes. And when they start struggling... They don't know who to turn to. They, they, they feel embarrassed to go to, to ask for even more help. Uh, they're not sure how to handle these situations that are coming up that weren't part of the training. Uh, they, they don't know what to do with their own uncertainties, and so they need coaching. And that's the part that's sometimes missing. We do the, disciple, the, the conversion, stabilization, the early discipleship, and the leadership teaching, but when we place them, we don't keep coaching them. Now, there's no prescribed formula for how this goes, but I think generally people need that coaching um, up front pretty regularly, like I do weekly for the vice presidents, but then it can expand beyond, or excuse me, then it can lessen after that, and the time between meetings can expand so that the coaching continues but isn't necessarily as intense. One-on-one teaching, one-on-one coaching. Another method of developing leaders are what are called closed small groups. Closed small groups are small groups of people that have a fixed uh, time of meeting, they have a fixed curriculum, and they have a closed membership. Now, this is where you take a group of two to three to five people and say, I want to work with you as a group through this process. Um, I'm a, a aware of one pastor who's done a, small, a closed small group leadership development process for more than 30 years. He started this many years ago. He meets every Friday morning for, for uh, I think it's 12 weeks in the fall and 12 weeks in the spring. 
Um, he invites a group of men to meet with him on Friday mornings at 6 a.m. for an hour to an hour and 15 minutes of leadership development. And he walks them through these 24 weeks of material that he's prepared, which he considers foundational for all men moving into leadership in his, in his church. He's been doing this for 30 years. He has a pretty strict rule about it. You, you have to sign up. Uh, excuse me, you have to be invited to participate. You have to make a commitment to be there. And there's 12 weeks in the first uh, semester, and you can miss twice. But if you miss the third time, you're dismissed from the group. You say, well, what if I get sick or have an unexpected emergency? You're dismissed. There, there's no exceptions. You can re-enroll the following year and go through the program again. But because of this high level of commitment and accountability, uh, the program is a high success rate. Now, this isn't all the leadership development the church does, but this is a core part of it. Out of this group experience often come these one-on-one -on -one teaching and one-on-one -on -one coaching opportunities. I asked this pastor, I said, well, as you look back over the years, how effective has this been? He said, well, I can point to almost all of the, of the, the uh, Bible teachers, program directors, and elders in our church, and I can point to almost all of them, and, uh, and almost all of them came through this program at some point in their leadership development process. So I'd say that's pretty effective. Sm Close small groups are where you take a group of people and you say for the next six weeks or for the next three months or whatever, we're going to meet together with a high level of commitment, accountability. In fact, there may even be some cost involved as people have to buy the curriculum or pay for the course. But there's something that causes them to have to band together, and if they complete the course, they'll be raised to a higher level of leadership capacity. And if they don't, they're not allowed to continue. And then the, the last method of developing leaders are conferences and seminars. That's uh, inviting people in to lead them or taking people to them. And I would just add this. I learned this a long time ago. Actually, I learned it by accident. Um, I had been sending people to conferences as a pastor for years and seeing a little bit of progress, but really not that much. Then one year, um, I went with a group to a conference, and afterwards I took them out to lunch. And I wasn't really planning to do this intentionally, but I just simply said, well, uh, what did you learn this morning? And they started debriefing with me over that lunch and what they had learned, and I was able to talk with them and solidify and actually make plans during that luncheon of how we were going to implement what they were learning when we got back home. I learned something that day. Sending people to conferences is not that helpful. Taking people to conferences, even though you may be bored by the content, you've heard it all before, you don't really feel like you need to be there, you're there not for your personal benefit, but to, but to mentor and to prompt the people that you've sent to immediate application as soon as it's over and to developing a strategy for putting it into practice when they get back home. And then the coaching process of that continues for the next few weeks as they bring about the changes that they want to implement based on what they learned. So four different methods to use in developing leaders. Now these rest on the reality that we've won a person to faith in Christ, stabilized them as a convert, and already moved them through a basic discipleship program. So these four things do not replace that process. They build upon it. Once you've brought a person through a basic discipleship program and you're moving them into leadership development, you can do that by one-on-one -on -one teaching, one-on-one -on -one coaching, closed small groups, and then taking people to conferences and seminars and debriefing those with them and helping them make application to the ministry setting. Thank you for letting me talk with you a little bit this morning about what it means to train leaders. Developing leaders for churches and ministry organizations, it's essential. It's time to get to it. Lead on.